Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. This week, I am joined for the first time by Bill Bender, who covers college football for the Sporting News. Really enjoyed working Bill into the podcast rotation. We'll talk Buckeyes and Wolverines and get into a little Wisconsin and maybe Michigan State as well. We'll look at some of last year's surprise teams in college football and try to figure out which ones will be able to keep it up this year. And we'll discuss a Nick Saban rant about players leaving school early for the NFL that I didn't think was all that ranty. Interesting, true, but not necessarily ranty. Thanks again for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can find us on Podcast One. You can find us on Apple Podcasts. You can find us just about anywhere you download your podcast. Please subscribe, and if so inclined, give us a good review. And as usual, you can go to collegefootball.ap.org, where you can read all of AP's college football coverage. And away we go. Joining me this week on the podcast is Bill Bender from the Sporting News. I believe you are a first-time uh, guest here on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. Are you not, Bill? I think this is the first time, but you know, I listen to it all the time. It's a it's an honor to finally crack that. And the fact that I'm talking to you means that that gap from the last time we talked at the uh, national championship game to now has closed, and it's time to get into some spring football. Yes, yes, I, we are past the final four, so we can now really concentrate on football. Not that we don't always concentrate on football, and and that that is uh, my bad on not having you on this thing sooner. By the way, like, let me just let me just say that. Like, I appreciate you listening, but definitely my bad for not having you on here sooner. So, Bill will be at the Ohio State spring game this weekend. Which is, you know, if you're going to go to a spring game, that's a good one because you'll get to see Justin Fields doing Ohio State things. And Ohio State is, has a new coach for the first time in several years now that Urban Meyer has transitioned out of there. So there's a lot of interesting things about Ohio State. There's always a lot of interesting things about Ohio State, but especially this year. So as you um, get ready to, to roll over to the shoe this weekend, what you know, maybe or maybe not will be a snowy, uh, a snow-covered horseshoe. There could be some snow heading that way. What are you looking for? And there's a lot to be looking for, but what's sort of at top of mind for you as you head over there? The new players. Like you said, Justin Fields, we watched practice last week, which I can't remember the last time Ohio State had an entire two-hour practice practice open to the media. Wow. And you got, well, yeah, it's a, it, it really is, to use the pun, a new day in Columbus when you can do that. And that was a bad pun, I apologize. But yeah, I think Fields, high level of fascination with him how that offense is going to work. You look at receiver. They had three guys go to the NFL combine and do well. And Garrett Wilson, a five-star freshman steps in on that side of the ball. I I don't know that we'll get a clue as to how they'll use JK Dobbins this year. You never get that in spring games. And then uh, this is what stood out to me last week is I I feel like I say this every year, whether it was Nick Boza or Joey Boza or Chase Young, but now they have another freshman coming off the edge, uh, Zach Harrison, who looks ahead of the curve as far as you know the size, the the ability to get to the quarterback. I think he's going to play and make an impact right away. 
Yeah, I, I think the interesting thing to me, and I, I don't know if we'll get – no, I'm not going to be there. I, I don't know if you can get a sense of this during the spring game. Though actually, you know, the the simple fact that what you just said about the open practice, I think, is maybe a window into something. I've been talking to a few people that I sort of know around the program about what exactly will Ryan Day's style bring? What is Ryan Day's personality as a head coach are there subtle differences in the way he handles the team? And, and the little tidbits I've been getting out of there are maybe, and, and be, I'll use the very frank language, maybe Ryan Day isn't as much of a hard ass as, as Urban Meyer. That's what sort of I've been getting. Maybe Ryan Day is not quite as, now, now that could be a good thing or a bad thing. We'll see how it plays out in the long run. But I, I'm, I'm very interested to see how that plays out going forward. Again, I don't know how much you'll learn of that from the spring game, but what a Ryan Day coach team is compared to what a Urban Meyer coach team is. Oh, that's an absolute, that's the perfect word because Ohio State fans, for lack of a better word, are used to the hard-ass coach from Woody Hayes to Earl Bruce to John Cooper wasn't that. But, you know, they still had really talented teams. They just couldn't beat Michigan. Uh, Urban Meyer is cut from that cloth that, you know, an Ohio guy, and as you know, I grew up in central Ohio, so I know the deal there. And Ryan Day is a little bit different style-wise. I think the two or three big things he'll have to answer in year one is, one, people are going to look at the Greg Madison thing really closely because the defense was so bad last year, number one. And number two, Greg Madison spent the last several years in Ann Arbor, and, uh, you know, he's already wearing, as he said, wearing red and uh, everything that comes with that. I, I think the other thing is he's not from Ohio. That's not a big deal to me, but it's a big deal to some people. And it'll be interesting to see how that, that'll only be a factor if they lose, which brings me to the, my third point is, you know, Urban Meyer was so good, Ralph, in the big game. That's what that was, you know, seven and zero against Michigan, twelve and five in the top against the top ten throughout the seven years. He only lost four Big Ten games. That's the one that sticks out to me the most. He only lost four regular season Big Ten games in seven seasons. Think about how you have to repeat that. It's almost impossible. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because the last couple of years, because they had the two similar losses, right? somewhat similar in the Iowa debacle in 2017 and Purdue last year. They're just two games, but because Ohio State never loses, they almost never lose in the Big Ten, a lot of scrutiny was placed on those two games, those two Big Ten games, because they were both blowouts and they most likely cost Ohio State playoff spots in both years. So I think there was a tendency to think, what is the flaw in Ohio State or Urban Meyer's style that lends itself to these like massive meltdowns. Now, again, that's such a tiny sample size. Maybe they have no correlation. But you do wonder if, you know, again, Urban was always so good about in the big games. Was there a tendency to not necessarily overlook, overlook is not the right word, but for the players to be so sort of amped for the big games that it was hard to recreate that in the other games, so it left them open for something like this. Now, again, again, I'm admittedly overanalyzing two games, but again, you know, those two games kept Ohio State out of the out of the playoff the last two years. Maybe in some way a new version of coach in Ryan Day allows for that not to happen. Yeah, you would think so. 
I was talking to Tim Tebow about that during the season last year after the Penn State game, which, as you remember, they they escaped that one, too. Mm-hmm. That was a game they could have lost. And then you wonder how the trajectory of the season would have been different had James Franklin and Penn State pulled that game out last year. And and Tim Tebow said the same thing. It was like the one thing that, that got away from them a couple times in Florida was like the old, he talked about the old Miss loss, that maybe they overlooked old Miss that year. And uh, we remember the speech after and everything else. But if you, the most inexplicable loss of the last three years to me wasn't Purdue last year because I think they just got into trouble and they ran into you know, a team that was hot and fast and, and playing for Tyler Trent, among other things. It was the Iowa loss. Like, I couldn't have guessed that one in a million years, that Iowa would beat them like that. And they were unfocused that day, and it did come off a big game, the Penn State game as well. So we'll see how Ryan Day does it from week to week. I know just looking at their schedule next year, they should be undefeated when um, they go to Lincoln. And that's that first big game I'm talking about. I think if Nebraska is undefeated and Ohio State is undefeated, it's a pretty good bet that uh, – game day will be in Lincoln on September 28th. Wow, it's probably been a long time since that's happened. I would love to I would have to look that up, but it's probably been a, a while since that would happen and that would be pretty cool. So let's let's shift a little bit cuz you mentioned Greg Madison and you can't talk about the Big 10 in Ohio State without also talking about her uh Jim Harbaugh because hey, he's the most ex- interesting man in college football though this offseason has been a little more quiet, and last season offseason was actually somewhat more quiet than the first few he spent in Ann Arbor. And this offseason has maybe been even a little more quiet for Harbaugh, which is generally a good thing, though he's had coaching staff change. Like the, the things that he's making headlines for this offseason are things that all coaches make headlines for, right? They're, they're, when you are a successful program, your coaches move around. Now, of course, having coaches leave Michigan for Ohio State is something a little different. But the big news around Harbaugh really has been bringing in Josh Gaddis to revamp that offense from Alabama to revamp the offense. I'm wondering what you're thinking of is of Harbaugh's offseason and what this offensive transformation could mean. Because we all sort of jumped to the conclusion that, well, they're going to modernize the offense, they'll do more spread stuff, blah, 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 blah. You know, what are you looking for out of a new Michigan offense? If they can replicate what Alabama does in the passing game with the receivers they have coming back, and Harbaugh truly gives the reins to Gattis. Like, we can talk about it now, Ralph, and say, oh, yeah, they're going to open it up. It's going to be great. And then... You know, when they open up against Middle Tennessee State with seven straight off tackles, you'll wonder, okay, is this really happening? Um, Yeah, I mean, they've got talent at receiver. Donovan Peoples-Jones, even though he's missed the spring, Tariq Black, Nico Collins. Shea's going to be able to throw it around to those guys if they open it up. And this is a a big season for them, not in terms of I always get the hardball hot seat question. He's not on the hot seat. I mean, I always pull out this stat. They're 38 and 14 under him. And only seven Power Five programs have a better record in that stretch. And that's Bama, Clemson, Ohio State, Oklahoma, Wisconsin, Georgia, Stanford. So it's not like Michigan's this terrible program. It's I'm what I would worry about is the entire season being a referendum on one game, because we all know he's 0 and 4 against Ohio State. So what do they do before Ohio State to ensure that they're maybe ten and one and have a shot to win the Big Ten again? and put behind what was, again, we were there, we were both there. I mean, 
if you would ask me at 1150, is Ohio State going to score 62 today? I would have told you no way, um, <laughs> but they did. Yeah, that was that result, not Ohio State winning, but that result was one of the most startling things I think I've ever seen uh, in person. <laughs> because yeah. Just to see that thing roll out of control on Michigan's defense. You know, I, I think I mentioned this one other time on this podcast that Harbaugh has moved into this weird space where he is only judged on his failures which is kind of an odd place to be in. And I think I even compared him possibly to, uh, I think it was I compared him to A-Rod, right? At a certain point, A-Rod, if you're a big baseball fan, you get this. You know, in his Yankees days, no matter what good he did, he was only judged by the times he struck out. Like, those were the big games. There were no big games in which he succeeded. There were only big games in which he failed. And I think that we're getting to that space on Harbaugh because they played Penn State last year and ran Penn State out of the building. And that suddenly became not a big game and they played Wisconsin and dominated Wisconsin and at certain even though that we went into that as being a big game it became not a big game after Michigan won it and I understand that everything all bets are off until he beats Ohio State but there has to be some acknowledgement of that program's growth under him and that it like it's it can't not be successful at all Right. If unless he beats Ohio State. But that's the weird space that Harbaugh exists in right now. They make a lot of John Cooper comparisons with him. And I don't think those are fair because I think a lot of Cooper's failures in the game, the two ten and one record stemmed from he was an outsider. Right. He came from Arizona State. There was a lot. I remember the year. I was in high school and he said, it's just another game. And you heard Terry Glenn say, Michigan is nobody. And that was a time when the Wolverines ran the rivalry. And Harbaugh understands the history of the rivalry. There's no doubt about it. He played in it. He grew up around it. That's not an issue. I think part of it was, you know, last year was the first time I really thought Urban out-schemed him. You know, Ryan Day out-schemed them. They, they really beat them. The first year it was a blowout. But that was mostly, you know, you're up against Elliott and Boza and a bunch of guys that are playing on Sunday now. The two in between were pretty close. And then last year, Ohio State just blew off, blew them out. So that's where you have to ask the question, is Jim Barball going to change his approach, especially offensively, to have something for them in Ann Arbor? But yeah, I mean, we didn't even talk about Michigan State. They've even that rivalry. They held Michigan State to 94 total yards last year and and strangled them from start to finish. And that's nobody that, okay. Well, and it's, well, Michigan state wasn't ranked. Well, that's still a big rivalry game. So he, I think the, the two things he has to do is beat Ohio state and win a big 10 championship, which they haven't done since Oh four. Those are the last two tests remaining. The, um, the, the Cooper comparison also, I think loses a little, and you sort of half referenced this in that Cooper went into some of his games with the better team. Right, that was one of the things that really crushed John Cooper at Ohio State. Is there were several times when Ohio State was on the cusp of a national championship, at least a couple of times, and Michigan wasn't on the cusp of a championship. It was an an eight and three Michigan team, or a or a team that was clearly not as good a team that beat Ohio State and prevented the Buckeyes from winning a national championship. So that was a little different dynamic from now. It was a little more like that last year 
in that Michigan was considered the better team, but Michigan by far was not the clearly better team last year. There's never been one of those situations where Harbaugh, which is another reason why I cut him a little more slack. Urban Meyer's program has been in full blossom while Harbaugh has been trying to catch up. You know, it's been four years and he hasn't done much to do it. And last year seemed to be the chance to do it. Let me refocus here. You mentioned Michigan State and Michigan State had a bad year for Michigan State standards. But now really the last couple of years have been a little below what we have sort of expected to from Mark D'Antonio over the last couple of years. They were mediocre last year with a terrible offense. Pretty good the year before. 10 wins, but with a mediocre offense. And then the year before that, they had three wins. So the last two of the last three years have not exactly been great for Michigan State. And we talk about Harbaugh changing his offense. Well, now the folks in East Lansing really want Mark D'Antonio to start doing something with this offense because it was horrendous last year. And all he did was rearrange the deck chairs. You know, he didn't bring in any new assistants. He didn't hand it over to anybody else. He just elevated some folks and moved some people around, uh, which is going to put a lot of scrutiny on Mark D'Antonio this year. Are they a possibility to get into, you know, we have thought that it's going to be Michigan, Michigan State, Penn State, Ohio State, but Michigan State seems to be sliding behind the other three. Is that slide going to continue this year? It's a pivotal year for them, and I think mainly because – I've kind of looked at their program, and it hasn't really been the same since they went to Columbus in 17, had a chance to, you know, win the Big Ten. And I believe the final score was 48-3. to I know that that game was over. I was at Notre Dame-Miami that week, but that game was over quickly in, uh, in Columbus. And again, a lot of Michigan State's seasons are predicated on what they do against Michigan. You can look back at the records. In the years where they beat Michigan, they go on to – pretty decent 9-10 win year, when they lose to Michigan, the wheels fall off pretty quickly. So, And that's not even mentioning Penn State. I mean, they if they lose to Penn State last year, we'll, we're probably looking at them even as clearly behind Michigan, Ohio State, Penn State. We all know Mark D'Antonio does his best work when they're operating with that chip on their shoulder, but they need better quarterback play too. They, they need a quarterback that can get the ball down the field, they need a, a better running game. Their defense wasn't the same in the secondary last year. And, uh, you know, I, I think Mark's done a fantastic job. But the same philosophical offensive questions that are being asked in Ann Arbor should and need to be addressed in East Lansing, too. And then on the other side of the division, the other one that was having sort of a had sort of an atypical year compared to the program was Wisconsin last year. Now, Wisconsin sort of salvaged it a little bit at the end of the year by winning its bowl game. But Wisconsin going 8-4 and four in the regular season is just not what folks in Wisconsin are waiting for, especially coming off a year, coming into a year where they started the season top five. Defense didn't play nearly as well last year and lost to Minnesota, which had it's been dog years since Wisconsin had lost that rivalry game. My gut says that it was a little bit of an anomaly and Wisconsin gets back to being Wisconsin this year. But the the West competition, and we've talked about this on the show a few times with some different folks, is seems to be getting better. Does Wisconsin bounce back this year? I think they do, but but I would temper it with this. Everybody but Illinois probably feels like they can win the Big Ten West this year, mm-hmm. whether it's Minnesota or Iowa or even Nebraska, and we touched on them a little bit earlier, 
So it's on Wisconsin to kind of reassert themselves as that team that can not only run the ball. I mean, they do have a Heisman candidate in the backfield. Jonathan Taylor, how often do you have a running back where you can pretty much book 1,800 yards? I mean, probably 2,000. Yeah, you're probably even undershooting it, right, at 1,800. Yeah. yeah, I was being conservative. But, again, they same thing as Michigan State. They need a quarter. I was at the Michigan game last year when they played them, and Michigan knew they couldn't throw the ball. So you have to have, whether it's Jack Cohn, Graham Metz, somebody else, they have to be able to stretch the field in the passing game. And if they can do that and the defense does play a little bit better, they'll be back in Indianapolis. But they're not. it's not going to be easy because I think what I worry about in the Big Ten West is because there are six teams that can feel like they, they can win it, they're probably going to beat each other up a little bit. And, and the winner of the division will probably have three losses at least. Yeah, I have to do a deep dive on the schedules, which I haven't yet. I, in in many ways, you could see that division be determined by who you play outside of the division. In other words, what team gets a, a little bit of a favorable draw, uh, like Northwestern, to a certain degree, did last year by n- not playing Ohio State, right? So that was sort of a little bit of a favorable draw, and then you beat up each other. And, you know, I was at Minnesota, I was in Minneapolis for the Final Four this past weekend and stopped by to see P.J. Fleck. And my sense of it is they're a 2020 team. They're still very young, but they've been playing a lot of very young players. But, I, you know, listen, I don't think Minnesota is a threat to, to contend for a national championship. But as you said, I think everybody in that division can look at the division and say, yeah, we can we can do this. We can compete in here. So, Bill, I want to take a quick break on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. And we'll be back with a little more from Bill Bender of the Sporting News. We'll do a couple of other topics. We'll talk a little about Nick Saban and some surprise teams from last year right after this. And we're back on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm with Bill Bender of the Sporting News. He is making his debut on this podcast, and that is my fault for not having him on sooner because he does a great job. We did a lot of Big Ten talk at the top here. So in the spirit of off-season content, I've been trying to come up with these like little like sort of quirky embrace debate topics on this podcast over the last few weeks. So one of the ones I came up with to Bill that I threw at him to ponder before he even came on the show is there were three sort of very surprisingly good teams last year around the country. There was more than that, but there were three that were very rather prominent ones in my mind. Washington State, which uh, I think won 11 games, had a great season with Gardner Minshew. Syracuse won double-digit games for the first time in about 15 or 20 years. Uh, great season there for Dino Babers with uh, Eric Dungy at quarterback. And Missouri, which I think only ended up winning eight games, but really surged late in the season and could have even, with a little luck, had a 9 or 10 win season. And the Tigers lose Drew Locke. So my question to Bill Bender is, out of those three teams, which one do you think is most likely to come close to repeating last year's success? Well, I would say Syracuse because there's a tremendous opportunity for them. And I, I've i done a little bit of the schedule, you know, kind of analysis for the top 15 teams or so. They get Clemson early. They get them in the Carrier Dome. And if you look at Syracuse's schedule after that, it's, very friendly. I mean, you could trip up at any time in the ACC, but I think Tommy DeVito is a guy that's played. That system works. Uh, Dino probably could have moved on, and, and it's fortunate for Syracuse he stayed because as long as they keep rolling, I mean, that's a team that could challenge for a New Year's Day Six Bowl 
And I just like their schedule a little bit more than the other two. But that's not to say, I mean, we I was making the joke at the title game last that, you know, it doesn't matter who Leach will find a quarterback to throw it around 70 times. But uh, he's got a couple choices there to make as well. But I, I would say Syracuse is the one out of those three I like the most. Yeah, you know, in some ways, you're right. It, it sort of comes down to the neighborhood you live in. And while Syracuse... I, you know, you can't say, well, Syracuse can't beat Clemson because it was just a couple of years ago that they actually did beat Clemson and they almost beat him again last year. But you're right. I mean, I think everybody in the ACC is sort of playing for second place behind Clemson to a certain degree. But there is probably enough room for growth around the rest of the ACC, especially when you look at, you know, who does Syracuse play across that division? Well, you know, they get Duke and they get Pitt. So... There's a lot of winnable games there. They also go to Maryland. It's funny, like my sense of Syracuse is that they are due to step back this year. I thought last year was a little bit of smoke and mirrors, but when you sort of look at it through the lens of who they have to play, I can so I can see your point of saying, hey, they're as good as most of the teams they have to play, so maybe they, they, do, they can have a repeatable season. Out of those three teams, which one is the one you're, you're most sure will take a big step back? Well, again, when you look at the schedule a little bit, I mean, Missouri has to work hard just to get to six sometimes, yeah, you know, or get yeah. to seven. And it took them tremendous effort to do that two years ago. They play West Virginia early in the season. That'll be a fun game with Neil Brown. And then, you know, you get into their crossovers. It's not too bad, but it's that week to week challenge of playing in the SEC. I'm happy for Kelly Bryant. I really want to see what he does in that conference and see how he develops. But, uh, I mean, you look at their November, it's at Georgia, it's Florida at home, it's at Tennessee, and I think Tennessee is going to be better with some of the talent Jeremy Pruitt's brought in there, and that's just one after another. So you, you kind of look at that and you're like, their schedule alone says if they get to seven, that's an accomplishment. The other, again, off-season content, you never know where it's really going to come from. But often Nick Saban is, provides a lot of it for us because we put a lot because we put a lot of attention on Nick Saban and you know and to to well let's two things because I know sometimes Alabama fans complain about how we in the media tend to jump on things that Saban says and talk about Saban a lot and I would say to them well you could also be irrelevant and so that would be a way to not having that happen so enjoy your status as having one of the most important figures in college football and being the most important program in college football and understand that that comes with a little more scrutiny the other thing is Saban likes to sort of grab the uh, bully pulpit every once in a while as long as it has a uh, is that especially if that bully pulpit has a uh, a coke bottle on it so <laughs> He likes to talk about big picture issues, things that uh, affect college football, things that affect his program. So last week he went on and it was sort of deemed online, which I didn't think was very fair, as a rant about players leaving early and how certain players maybe leave too soon where they could increase their value. And his program is all about, hey, if you stay a little longer, we will get you from a second or third round pick or a fourth round pick into a first round pick. And that makes all the difference in the world financially. Again, I didn't necessarily think it was a rant, but it got a lot of play. And I'm wondering, you know, what out of it, if anything, caught your attention, Bill? Well, here's something you and I were talking about last year too is the one thing Alabama does I think better than any program in the country is they develop Quinn and Williams in one year last year at this time I was definitely not going on radio shows or writing anything about Quinn and Williams and now there's a 
at least somewhat of a chance he could be the number one pick in the NFL draft. So they do develop players as well, if not better than anybody, to go to the NFL. That's number one. I think it's a preemptive shot at the XFL in some ways if the XFL really? starts coming at that's interesting. Um, that's an interesting perspective. No, I, I like that, though. But that's what he does, right? Everything, every, and that's not a rant. I wouldn't cl- classify it as a Saban rant, but everything he does is by design. We, we both know this from seeing him at SEC Media Days all those years. So is this a shot at, you know, let's say you're an 18-year-old kid and you go to the XFL over Alabama. Is that, which one would you do? I still believe, and I've, I've contended this for years, that of the the major sports like NBA, if you want, if Zion Williamson went to the NBA, I'm okay with that. But there are only a handful of players that I really believe could have gone to the NFL at age 18, and I'm talking about like the Adrian Peterson class of guy. Mm-hmm. Um, Trevor Lawrence, do you think he could play in the NFL now? I think so. I don't know if he could have done it at 17. No, I'm pretty sure he even well he's he's still a pretty thin kid. He probably still needs to mature a little bit. No, could he play in the NFL? Could he have played in the NFL last year? Eh, you know, I think he would probably had a hard time really maintaining any level of success in the NFL last year. But I would say this: he would probably still have been a number one overall draft pick had he come out, because somebody would have said. We'll give him a year on the bench. We'll feed him some hamburgers and get him in the weight right. room, and we'll be fine then in twenty twenty in twenty twenty to have to unleash him. But that's a different that's a different argument, of course, and that's a different comparison. Well, and I think Jadavion Clowney is the best high school player I've ever seen in person. I got to see him a couple years in, when I was living in Charlotte, and uh, I don't think he would have been ready for the NFL at eighteen either, because you need the weight room, you need the development. Now, if you want to say after his sophomore year or freshman year and parse it up that way, that's fine. But I do think there's some design to what Saban's saying there because the calendar on the other side keeps getting pushed up too. I mean, you're seeing high school kids enroll earlier. I'm waiting for the day for a high school kid to skip his senior year of football. Mm-hmm. I, I think the countdown on that is on. And, and Saban seems to be ahead of the curve. And you know, not, to spin that back to the XFL, I was talking to somebody else about that this morning. And they brought that to my attention, and it made me think because that may be another way for the XFL to sell itself is to allow, you know, kind of take that shot at the NCAA and pull in the 19-year-old kid and give them a chance. Now, if that happens, you and I are going to be writing a lot about that, I'm sure. Yeah, no, and I think that is a possibility. I, I do think now again, I don't know if the XFL is going to be a, be able to pay these guys enough to justify them doing it. But I think you will might see some kids who, hey, maybe this academic thing isn't really working out for me. I have to worry about, you know, whether I'm actually going to pass and be eligible next year. I, I could definitely see some kids in that area uh, who look at the XFL and think, hey, I'm not ready for the NFL because they won't have me yet, that you could see those guys jump in. It, it, it's very interesting. what the, the XFL hasn't – Oliver Luck is the uh, president of the XFL, and he has come out and said, listen, you know, we're, we have no rules against. We don't, we're not going to honor the NFL's rule as far as when players can jump into our league. Now, yet, that doesn't mean he said that we're going to go aggressively pursue underclassmen. I think he was just sort of leaving open the possibility that this could happen. So it's to be determined where the XFL will land on this and if it will pay enough to really convince 
high visibility, high value kids to come in. Because if I'm a sophomore at Alabama, if I'm going to start at Alabama, possibly win a national championship with the idea that I could be a first round draft pick uh, the next year, a year in the XFL collecting a check for, let's say, $120,000 might not really be worth it. Oh, I totally agree. And and again, Alabama, they just – maybe the other source of that rant is they have had some guys leave. But but I always look at it this way, when it, and we both follow the NFL pretty closely. I When Alabama sends a guy to the NFL, I mean, I can't think of too many of them that – they really took off from there, and they were so much better than they were in college. I mean, Julio Jones is an outlier. He was a freak there. He's a freak now. He He's always going to be good. But, I mean, like, they're just solid NFL players, whether it's, you know, C.J. Mosley or Jonathan Allen. I mean, and on and on. There's so many of them this decade that, you know, you wonder, does I actually believe that Saban kind of maxes those guys out at college because their NFL value doesn't go up tremendously when they get to the next level they're just all mostly solid players and maybe that's the source of his frustration that he wants that time because he believes some of those guys aren't at that max potential I will admit this and and he is right most Alabama guys when they stay do gain value I also wonder if Saban though is looking at it a little too myopically because that's not the case all the time I think Alabama has such a wealth of talent that I think what his message is, if you stay that extra year, I will almost assuredly take that talent out of you. You'll get a little more playing time. The other thing that happens at Alabama is you get a guy like Jonathan Allen goes from a rotational player who probably could have been a, a second or third round or maybe even a, a, a late first round draft pick after you know, before he had his breakout year, when he was still a rotational player, I guess in 2016, 2017, he becomes the man. They move on some of their depth to the NFL, and then he becomes a top ten or fifth. I guess he was a top fifteen pick, right, or something along those lines. Right. So he gained a lot of value, and that's sort of the Saban Alabama model, right? For your redshirt freshman year, for a couple of years, we're probably going to ease you in. So by the time you get to your junior or senior year, now you will play a more prominent role, come back, and we will almost assuredly max you out, as to use your term, by then. And now you're getting full value. We will eventually work you into a first rounder or a low second rounder and get, or, you know, really a first rounder to get that money. You know, the, the folks in Alabama seem to think he was taking a shot at Ron, Ronnie Harrison. A safety who left last year and is probably not a first round draft pick is probably more of like a you know second or third, maybe even a fourth. But I, I think where Saban sort of maybe because again his program has been so good at this, where he sort of loses a little bit of focus or it doesn't address the other side of some players don't gain value when they come back. You know, sometimes the scouts will tell you know you'll you'll talk to scouts and they'll tell them like listen. Like you're not going to get taller. You're not going to get faster. You you've already played a lot of football in college. We have tape on you. The chances of you coming back to school and drastically increasing your value are not that great. So I think that is a, a reality for a lot of prospects that they are looking at coming back to school and only have a chance of either decreasing value or just getting hurt. 
And I think that's what explains a lot of guys when we look at the draft list and look at the underclassmen and say, oh, that guy, that guy, that guy, wonder why this guy's going in. A lot of times it's because what those players have been told is it's not getting any better than now. So you can go back for another year of college and play for free and still be pretty much the same prospect you are this year. Well, and again, the the Quinn and Williams, like he can't do anything more in college. And he's also part of this. I mean, the story of the draft this year, because last year it was the quarterbacks this year. It's that's a great segue because it's guys like Quinn and Williams. It's guys like Rashawn Gary at Michigan, who at times, because of that athletic ability, because he was the number one recruit in the country, because of all those things, he looks like one of the best players in the country. But you look at his production, you're like, where are the sacks? You know, why, why didn't he get home more on those? I mean, I was just writing something today and looking at Ed Oliver bouncing around the draft board. I'm like, how is he not a top five pick? But part of it is there's so many good defensive linemen in this in this draft this year. And to your point, I mean, Nick Saban can lose Quinn and Williams. He's got two more guys behind him. Michigan loses Rashawn Gary. And they've got some decent guys that played well last year, like Uche and Pay and the, and whatnot. And, you know, Winovich has gone too. But it's a bigger hole at Michigan to lose Rashawn Gary than it is for Alabama to lose Quinn and Williams. Now, Clemson might be a little bit different, but they had all those guys come back to school, which was another anomaly that Wilkins and Farrell and all those guys chose to come back for another year. And that, that probably speaks to the program Dabo's running because – I guess they have some questions on the defensive side of the ball this year, but I'm wondering if that – I watched a little bit of their spring game. I'm wondering if they're going to average 50 points per game with all those receivers, and I don't hesitate when I say that. Yeah, and and they've got the next group of defensive linemen sort of sort of marinating behind them, the Xavier Thomases and a couple of other guys who, who they've been lined up to be the next wave. Whether they'll be as great as last year's defensive line immediately, probably not. But, yeah, their reinforcements are coming through Clemson as well. Let me uh, wrap this up real quickly on the draft, Bill, because you are bigger. You probably, I think you pay attention to the NFL a little more than I do during the season because you get looped into some NFL coverage, which I almost never do. But, you know, as someone who grew up loving both college and, and NFL football, I always love the draft. I find myself not loving it quite as much anymore because I don't know if I, I love the way it is covered, though come draft day, you know, I get excited. I really like to see just, I'm still a bit of a draft, Nick. I still like to see who goes where and sort of, you know, make predictions about who did a good, you know, who had a good draft and do that silliness where we grade the drafts, you know, a day after, which is, which is, you know, completely crap shooting. But nonetheless, do you still, do you like the draft? Do you like the NFL draft? I do. I I get excited about it. I, I know. And as you said, I do a little bit for sporting news, whether it's the occasional Cleveland Browns feature. or I am, I will say this on the podcast, I'm a lifelong Packers fan. So that the Bleacher Report article last week, I, I read it a couple times. He did a really nice job with that, by the way. But it, it was a lot of things where, you know, you, you follow Aaron Rodgers' career as closely as I do. There's an opportunity for him. But, but your question about the draft, I think the big story this year is, is one, are the Cardinals going to take Kyler Murray? number one. And what does that mean for Kingsbury? What does that mean all the way down to Oklahoma for Lincoln Riley and Jalen Hurts? Because and if I'm recruiting and I can say, oh, by the way, I had the last two number one picks 
and the last two Heisman Trophy winners playing quarterback for me. That's got to be the easiest pitch in the w- the world for Lincoln Riley. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what does Kyler Murray mean for the NFL? Because I've said this all along about him since he decided to play football. It reminds me of Michael Vick. They're com- two completely different quarterbacks, so follow me here for a second. Mm-hmm. Um, Vick was the last guy, when I watched him at Virginia Tech, I wondered the whole time, what's that going to look like in the NFL? I mean, him running around, is he going to be that good? And I was never more excited to see a quarterback do what he did in the NFL. And remember, Vic only completed 60% of his passes once. So now I want A little bit different NFL then, though. I mean, as far as the way quarterbacks were expected to throw downfield a little more. So, And that's that's not a knock on Vic. That actually speaks well to Vic. That that was a a point in time where 60% wasn't quite the given. Right. And, And I want to see what Murray does. Mm-hmm. And that was the most exciting part of me of him choosing football is, look, I don't know if Kingsbury is going to work in the NFL. I don't know if Murray is going to be good in the NFL, but I do know that I want to see it happen to see if it does. Because if it does, it adds another layer of excitement with this young quarterbacks that we have like Baker and Darnold and, and Mahomes and, and this young class of quarterbacks, Lamar Jackson, that I like. I like seeing Guys do well in college, go in the NFL and do well. Some guys don't for some reason. I always do. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. I find myself completely rooting for all the guys. Like, well, I root for almost all of them, especially if they happen to play for the Jets. But I do like <laughs> to see. But I do like to see the guys who succeeded in college go on to like play well in the NFL because you know what I enjoyed watching them Lamar Jackson's a perfect example I enjoyed watching him play in college and I would love to see if he can do that same thing in the NFL because it was so enjoyable to watch it in college and how cool would it be if he can do something to replicate that success in the NFL there's nothing wrong with that I mean and some guys we get so obsessed with breaking down a college quarterback's NFL value that I think Murray could be a guy that that kind of melts the two together a little bit. I know one guy that I don't know what he'll do in the NFL, but I classic example is Trace McSorley. I loved watching him play in college. I don't know if he'll play it down in the NFL. I don't know how it'll translate, but I know with Penn State and what he means to that program that he's probably one of the more enjoyable quarterbacks I've watched in the last 10 years. Bill Bender from the Sporting News, thank you so much for doing this this week. We have to make sure we try to do this a little more often. Appreciate you uh, coming on and sharing some knowledge. And uh, enjoy the Ohio State spring game. Spring games are always so much fun. Um, but but you know what? It would be cool to watch Justin Fields slinging around a little bit for Ohio State. Yeah, you just got to get there early with the traffic, Ralph. And uh, thanks so much for having me on. And uh, anytime you want to do this, uh, hopefully I pass the test and we can do it again. Absolutely, Bill. Thanks.